where it says Kia ora, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. And then uh, I'd like to welcome you here to uh, the University of North Carolina at Greensboro to the Department of Kinesiology uh, and our uh, pedagogy creative, uh, our creative pedagogies class, uh, pedagogies of creativity or whatever you would like to uh, refer to it as. We're learning about it as we go. Uh, and uh, also we'd like to check the weather so uh, last week we were in Melbourne and uh, it was 40 degrees, I think, and at least the skies were cleared. The week before we were in Switzerland, it was freezing and uh, snowing. Uh, and then Ohio came in as well, but it wasn't quite as cold. And then today it's 60 degrees and overcast in Greensboro. And we're very fortunate to have uh, Laura Pipe with us and uh, she is uh, a emerging scholar and uh, is kind enough to come and talk to us a little bit about indigenous pedagogies. And I'd love to hear your introduction to that, uh, if that's okay. And then I will give you my formal introduction, my uh, pippi haha and uh, mihi later. So off to Laura, if that's okay. Um, well, before we get started, I wanna just take a moment to do a brief land acknowledgement. We are on the stolen and unceded lands of the Catawba, Kiawe, and Saro. Um, and I think it's important for us to stop and acknowledge that and acknowledge that we're standing here on the backs of others um, and venture to do our best work together. Fantastic. So um, I'm Laura Pike. So I do a couple of different things here at the university. I direct our faculty development office. I'm a kinesiology grad. I finish my PhD here in sociohistorical kinesiology. So my study is actually um, much more about the culture, sociology, and history of human movement. And in particular, I look at skateboarding and bicycle motocross and how public space is constructed. And so um, the indigenous piece of this came into play for me. My dad's family is Tuscarora, part of the Haudenosaunee, their maternal line. So my dad is and I am not. And I had kind of pushed that to the side and I started noticing about two years ago, something was happening in my teaching that was different than my colleagues. And it was really resonating with our indigenous students. And I was trying to figure out what it was. And so indigenous pedagogy kind of came to the forefront of that conversation and realizing that a lot of the ways I was teaching were the ways I was taught. And so even though I don't count in indigenous concepts, it still impacts my everyday choices, right? It's still part of my identity and who I am. So I always joke with my indigenous students and say nothing like your late 30s, early 40s to have an identity crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I want to start us with a story, and it is the story from the Haudenosaunee, and it's the story of the Creator's Game of Lacrosse. And so um, we talk about before time existed, right, back in the time of imagination, the birds of the air and the animals of the land decided to play a ball game. And so they chose and divvied out who was going to be the captain, the deer became the captain for the animals of the land because he was quick and agile. The owl became captain for the birds because he was smart and wise. The bear played, the turtle played, the hawk played, the eagle played, right? They had all of these great roles that they played. As they were planning their strategy for how they were gonna to play together, the birds noticed there were these two tiny little four-legged animals that were kind of just hovering in the background, trying so hard to get someone's attention. And it was the mouse and the squirrel. 
And so they stopped and said, what is it that we can help you with? And they said, we just really want to play. Can we play on your team? And they said, well, no, you're animals of the land. You have four legs. You can't play with us. You have to be on the other team. And they said, much to their dismay, we asked. And they said, no, they wouldn't let us. We're too small. We're too fragile. And so the birds got together and they thought and they thought and they said, there must be a way we can let you play. And so the owl in his wisdom said, let's get the ceremonial drum head and let's pull it apart and we can fashion wings. So they built wings and put it on the mouse just so and the mouse could fly. Then they realized they were out of weather. So they thought and thought, what can we do for the squirrel? So they opted to stretch his arms and stretch his sides right and pull them apart and thus this is how the bat and the flying squirrel were created mm-hmm. but the game commenced and it was passionate and it was violent and it was great and it was healing as the game is and at the very end they were tied both the animals of the land and the birds of the air and in the last few seconds of the game it was of course the squirrel and the bat that sat, it caught the ball and put it in the net. And the lesson of the story is, even the smallest of us have a role to play. Um, and I start with that story because the creator's game is such an essential part of the Hodnershon community, right? We're born with sticks in our beds, as they say, right? We, we play the cross for everything. And it's the creator's game because the creator witnessed this game and loved it so much that he gave it to his people. He gave it to his people out of love. So when we play, we play for the creator. We don't play to win. We don't play to end violence. We play because we want to please the creator. And we play in our pleasing of the creator to heal ourselves and heal other communities. So it's an essential part of our community. And I start with the story because they believe that that's a huge part of what indigenous pedagogy is. It's starting to understand stories. Indigenous pedagogy, I think the most important thing to think about is what it isn't, because it's not a singular thing. Every indigenous culture has a different form of how they teach and how they learn. And there are over a hundred different indigenous nations just here in the United States. There are some similarities, there are many differences. Stories are what root us, particularly in the U.S. and Canada, right? Stories are what root the culture. It's how we share, right? It's, it's how we teach who we are and how we validate those stories. And so to get it started, I want to share with you kind of an important starting place, I guess. And this is called the Colonial Matrix of Power. I don't know if you guys, if any of you guys have seen it. I'm going to hold one for duty, is that okay? So the Colonial Matrix of Power came out of Walter McNolo's work. He's at Duke. He's an Argentinian. Um, and it's really looking at this idea of throughout history, how, do, how have colonizers colonized? Where do they start? And this is not just your European colonizers. He's going all the way back to Romans. He's going back to the Greeks. He's going all the way back. Um, you'll notice, though, that the British colonizers here in the United States surely followed this model. <laughs> they start with knowledge and subjectivity. And what they do is they start to undermine ways of knowing. 
So by saying that something doesn't follow the right methodology, it's not been reviewed, it's not been gone through all of these processes that we in higher ed cling to in the creation of scholarship, then it's no longer valid. So the very stories that shape these indigenous communities, shape how they share information, right? How they craft knowledge from the very beginning is being undermined and said, this is not valid, right? This is mystic, this is foreign. Your shaman and medicine men who help you in all these situations are just making these things up because there's no scientific proofs through the scientific method, right? So they start by invalidating knowledge. And if you can undermine knowledge, then the other things fall into place very easily. When you undermine knowledge, then all of a sudden the economy is shaped in a different way. No longer are we looking at information and food and clothing and all the things that made our indigenous communities work. I mean, they existed for thousands of years with each other in very powerful ways here on this continent before the British ever came. And then they disrupted it by saying, well, farming is not as great as being an engineer, right? So now you're shaping the economy in a different way. So they've undermined their entire sense of economy. Then they go after authority. And that authority comes in the shape of governments, military, rules, laws, policies, right? And so particularly that shows up for us in things like the forced removals of Indians from their land, from native um, individuals, particularly by Andrew Jackson. Really heavily hit in this particular area, right? Because it was the tribes that were closest to us that were the ones who were forcibly removed west, right? So if we, they can, create a policy that says, this land is no longer your land, right? You, you have to move. What it did to those communities in particular, place is such an essential anchor to their identities and to mm -hmm. who they are, right? To their mm -hmm. sacredness. It's how they connect with physical activity. It's how they connect with food. It's how they connect with healing. It's how they connect with each other, language. And all of a sudden, to be forcibly removed from them, you disrupt everything that makes a community healthy, right? At the same time, post-contact in 1492 here in North America, you see the British and the French being very clear that they felt that the indigenous communities were wasteful in their time because they were always playing games, they were always playing sport. And so they kept saying that, that we have to rob them of this. We have to take this away because that's the only way we're gonna ever get them to be civilized. So when their entire health and identity is tied to these spiritual components of being physically active and we pull that away, right? The main premise of the boarding schools um, in this country was to remove them from being Indian, right? Kill the Indian, save the man is Richard Pratt's favorite saying. And they did that by removing sport and key concepts of sportsmanship that were foundational to particularly the Eastern tribes. That's all coming out of that authority. That makes it very easy for them to then put into place conceptions of what gender and sexuality look like, what's moral, what those roles are, and how they're performed. And indigenous communities, particularly in the United States at that time, um, women played a very substantial leadership role that was very nuanced. So if you're observing it and from the outside as a Westerner, you don't see it. 
but they made decisions about who would be in leadership, who would be um, tasked with certain roles within the community. They were actually the ones in charge of um, farming and getting food and providing for the family. Um, so it's, it's a very different role than what we're used to. And that was one of the first thing the British did is come in and regulate women to a certain space regulate folks who didn't subscribe to a specific sexuality to a certain space. And so that destabilized these communities and allowed for a division and conquering that's very famous in British colonization. But it leads to this much larger stool of race, racism and patriarchy, right? And so um, you see this over and over in these communities things like dance like we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. right dance is an essential part of indigenous storytelling here in the mm -hmm. united states it is in the polynesian communities mm -hmm. as well it's considered unmasculine in western culture particularly the type of dancing that they do in their storytelling right that is very active and that is part of this process of racism and patriarchy being built right destabilizing how these communities function so when I first start working with our students, because um, the first thing I noticed when I looked at indigenous pedagogy is there's not a lot of research about indigenous communities here in the South. So almost all the research about indigenous pedagogy here in the US and Canada is starting in kind of right at the Canadian US border. And a lot of it is Canadian heavy. The Canadians have done a lot more work in acknowledging some of the hurt they've done they are not great at it, but they've done more work, right, than we have. Um, so there's been more of a conversation, and that's certainly aligned with a lot of my teaching because the Haudenosaunee are right there in New York State and in, in Toronto covering that area. But that doesn't mean it's gonna resonate with their students here. So I started actually meeting with our indigenous students here on campus to talk with them. And so the conversations have come about with them and continue to happen around how important storytelling is and how invisible they feel when they go to classes and they're told that's not valid ways of knowing, that's not valid scholarship, right? How um, demoralized they feel when they go home and they can't share with their parents the experiences they've had because they're so different than what their parents felt they could have. So yesterday um, I teach a, in a native health and physical activity course and there are a few native students in there and we were looking at the carlisle boarding school which was probably the most famous indian boarding school here in the united states it was certainly the most humane it was still very horrific it was the first um it's where um bright path jim thorpe came out of many of your key indigenous athletes um pop warner coached there which you'll you, when you read about how he coached there you'll be very much mortified that we name our children's um, football game after him. After him. Yeah. Um, he, he, as Richard Pratt said, and now Richard Pratt is the architect of the boarding school era, right? He's the one who said, let's take them from their families because their families don't know how to raise them and we will civilize them, right? So they stole these kids. These are stolen generations. Even he said Pop Warner was horrific, mm. right? And Pop Warner, he said, taught them how to lie, how to cheat, how to steal, 
how to play games with dishonesty. So in all essence, he did teach them how to be white men. The indigenous folks will tell you, particularly the Lumbee, sport here was played with the sheer concept of fair play, right? Because you were playing for the creator. You were playing for the community. Community was before the individual. So this idea of doing trick plays and yelling and trying to motivate folks the way modern coaching often does was, was a foreign concept then. But we were looking at the Carlisle archives um, out of Dickinson College. And if you ever get a chance to look at them, they're incomplete, but they're all the records they could find. It really does lay out how in this country we perceive indigenous knowledge, right? Very much second-class citizens. Every time they exerted their right to freedom, they were told that they thought they were above work. Right? I mean, it's literally written and transcribed. And so my indigenous students, because I gave the students time to go through it, one of them pulled me aside and said, I just realized my whole life I've been told I have to go away to learn. I can't learn in my community. I can't learn from my parents. So I'm sent away to school and I only come home to do homework that my parents can't help me with. And she said, I really wonder if it's tied to this boarding school concept. And it is, right? It's this idea that in order to be civilized, you can't be civilized in the community because your community is not civilized, right? And these are important concepts when you're starting to think about indigenous pedagogy because you can't divorce them from the history, right? And so, um, storytelling, I think, is essential for us to figure out how we help students begin to embrace their own narratives as data points. Mm -hmm. Because students have been told over and over again that information and scholarship is objective. And it's not. We know it's subjective, right? But more importantly, that your personal experience isn't valid unless it can be triangulated, or unless it's been written in a book, right? Validated. Validated, right. And so the second handout I'm gonna give you, well, the good handout, sorry. Me too. Is about power over culture, or white supremacy culture in the United States. And this is important when we talk about this because this is the antithesis of everything that indigenous pedagogy in the United States look like. But if you read through it, this is everything that the academy is. And power over culture is the nice way of saying it. It is a white supremacy culture. It is a colonizing culture that we embrace in higher education and we reinforce. And so it's an important place to start when you start thinking about indigenous pedagogy because understanding what it isn't is going to help you start to dissect what it could be. So indigenous pedagogy from what I have seen and from my work with our students here is heavy in reflection, heavy in applied learning, heavy in experiential learning, but requires a significant amount of unlearning that at one point wasn't necessary. And it's unlearning these pieces um, that has to take place. And so how do you help students start from a place of comfort of understanding that academic detachment is one way of knowing 
it's not the only way of knowing. And that is what we teach in higher education is academic detachment, right? If I can repeat the formula, if I can repeat the theory separate from myself, it, I don't have to internalize what this is. Indigenous pedagogy here in the United States is heavily about taking information in, seeing where it settles. And that was when I realized I was teaching my student differently because I would constantly say, I'm having you try this theory on, right? I'm having you try on C. Wright Mill's sociological imagination. I want you to tear it apart. I want you to play with it. And then I want you to pull it inward and see where it settles. It's a very indigenous way of thinking without me even realizing that's what I was doing, right? Where does it settle in your middle? And my indigenous students got that right away. My white students struggle with that horribly, right? They're like, because well, then what's going to be on the test? The <laughs> test is going to be you applying where it settled, right? I'm going to give you an example, and you tell me where these things have settled. And that is very much an indigenous way of being, is it has to be put in context of something that's real, right? So memorization of rote facts doesn't have a greater purpose. It needs to be attached to this idea of how does this help the community around me? So the Lumbee call it the seven generation theory. I'm responsible for seven generations. My generation, the three before me, and the three after me. So everything I'm doing right now is for those seven generations. And that's why these narratives are so important, why reflection is so important, and why application is so important. So if students can't see how learning this material can then be applied to better help the community, it does not have a connective piece to their spirit. Maria Baptiste, she is in um, kind of the Toronto area and she calls it the learning spirit. That's what they call it in her community. And it's this natural thirst and hunger for knowledge that we're all born with. So in her culture, she be they believe that the creator endows each one of us with this natural learning spirit who has a purpose for walking the earth. And it is up to our students to discover that purpose. The challenge becomes when you look at our K through 12 system, the overstandardization of education and the hope to benchmark it has essentially science that learning spirit. And the best example I can give you is the moving from kindergarten to first grade in the United States. In kindergarten, it's often about sitting in circles, sharing stories, manipulative play, right? So building things, figuring out how they work. First grade, you go to sitting in desks and rows, right? You're starting to memorize words, you're starting to memorize things, right? So you go from a creative and creative and curious embrace of knowledge to a rote memorization of knowledge, right? And that is really that first step in kind of silencing that creative thirst um, that is the learning spirit. And so she believes that we have to help our students essentially develop a two-eyed seeing. The ability to see the white world, the colonized world they're going to walk in, but the eyesight to also see that creative learning spirit, right? That indigenous way of knowing. Um, how do I blend these two? Because they're going to have to operate in two pieces. Um, so the learning spirit becomes the foundation of us learning to trust our students, trusting the learner, which is something that is not popular in U.S. education. That's where the standardization comes from. 
right? And so that comes from Michelle Tanaka's work. Um, Michelle Tanaka is out of British Columbia. And her work is looking at how do we begin helping our students unlock their own purpose and trusting that learning will happen the way it's meant to happen for that individual person. Which means that these 15 week semesters that we use in higher education here in the US are too linear for the learning experience, right? And so indigenous pedagogy here in the US is heavily about moving away from the linear, right? Circles are extremely sacred in indigenous communities here in the US. You walk the circles of medicine wheel, right? Mm -hmm. um, linear concepts are not even present in most indigenous histories, right? This connection to the spirituality and the spiritual world is an essential part. The connectedness to a reciprocity with the earth. So um, they call it in British Columbia and several of the tribes there, working with good hands. So how do we teach our students to understand how everything they do impacts the world they live in, right? How do they work through these good hands? And so all of those pieces come back together and they challenge this power over culture in significant ways. It's, it literally is the polar opposite of, of how we've built our entire system of education in the United States. So then the last handout I'll give you, wow. I love a good handout. So you're just really flipping everything on his head. So a lot of the stuff that we've been learning, for example, PCK. Right, all of that. Know, all right. And, and I, uh, I would tell you if we're lucky, we've still got kindergarten. I don't believe we do. I think it really depends on the teacher. Yeah. I think and the general, they, and they, the general and the populations. Center. Yeah. I mean, ABC Mouse is all over television. Mm -hmm. we're, we're bringing it to pre-kindergarten students to get ahead, to pass the test, to be able to read. To do all these things, I'm right. I'm fearful that we've lost yeah. to meet this. To meet that, right? To meet the, yes. This. It is a white supremacy culture. Absolutely, it's not even. It, it, it is this concept of a power over, right? right? And individualized. This is, this is the acts that make this pulling of knowledge and subjectivity. Yeah. Right. This is how we colonize that. Yep. Is through these steps in a power over culture. Mm -hmm. So the handout I just gave you is about the reflective learning pieces. Um, mm. Jennifer Moon, she's actually had a great brain, and she has now left higher education to write folk stories. Found that out because we asked her to write a chapter in an edited book. <laughs> she declined. She said, "I write folk stories," and we said, "Great, can you write a folk story using your reflection theory?" And she said, "Sure." Excellent. <laughs> and I've overlaid this with huh. Bloom's taxonomy. And then I overlaid it with a revised Bloom's taxonomy, huh. which is coming out of the University of Iowa. So this to me has been very important in my conversations with our indigenous students here on campus because reflective learning is so important. And it is something we don't teach, something we don't embrace. It's something we don't even teach to our faculty on how to be reflective teachers. Um, but it's important in helping them begin to make sense of all their learning. So Jennifer Moon's work starts with these kind of blue five stages of reflection. And so she said, you know, noticing is obvious, 
I've noticed something happens, maybe even unconsciously, right? And I'm not making sense of it, I'm not thinking about it. I just know it is, right? It's been presented. The second stage is making sense. So how do these pieces fit together, but I'm not adding anything. If you look at power over culture, it really likes to stop in these first two, right? Mm -hmm. I don't need you to get to making meaning. That's where new scholarship is made and you don't have the background to do that yet if I'm working with undergraduates, right? And the reality is we should be making them move these to these higher ends, right? Meaning making is I've now made sense of this existing and now I'm going to add it to some knowledge that I may already have, but I'm not, it's not going to be knowledge that I myself have created, right? It's not going to be experiences I've had. It's other things that I've learned, right? So I know Columbus sailed the world and found the U.S. in 1492, right? North America, right? That's the thing. So when I say we talk about pre-contact, so pre-1492, I'm now making meaning because I've now had it justified twice, but it's nothing new. It's concrete information you've already given me. Working with meaning is where that comes. So when my native students say, oh yeah, 1492 is contact, I can tell you all the things that I think happened after contact. So here in the United States, what happened after contact is we went from a population of indigenous bodies of close to 30 million, some estimates as high as 100 million, to by the 1700s, we were down to 500,000. By the late 1800s, we were down to 250,000, and there were great plans in the U.S. government about how they were going to handle the extinction of Native people in the United States. And part of that was a boarding school method with the idea of education for extinction. Right. Right. Then the last stage is actually the stage where I think the creative learning spirit sits which is transformative knowledge. I'm making new knowledge from this so that now I can go back to that very thing I noticed and look at it in a completely different way, a way that I could have never seen it if I hadn't gone into this transformative learning place. So when you lay that over with Bloom's, Bloom's taxonomy, of course, is our favorite way to justify student learning outcomes here in the U.S. in particular, right? You start to see how you're moving up the Bloom's taxonomy. And what I love about the revised Bloom's taxonomy is it adds this piece down along the side, right? Which starts to think and understand that knowledge happens also in dimensions, not just in can I apply it and create, but moving away from factual pieces to actual metacognition, thinking about thinking, right? And so when you start to overlay those two together, transformative learning becomes the goal. And that gets us back to where indigenous pedagogy is really rooted, right? Um, it's not about memorization. It's about the ability to take information and make knowledge. That makes sense. So those are the pieces I have found thus far. Wow. <laughs> Our indigenous students are working right now to put on a workshop for faculty. Um, on indigenous learning and the piece that became very clear in that conversation is needing to do the history, right? Mm -hmm. There has to be a conversation about the history of indigenous bodies, mm -hmm. particularly here in the South, but in the U.S. and North, mm -hmm. North America in particular, because many folks aren't aware um, and it's so important. And so I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. the Polynesian Cultural Center. If you ever get a chance to go to Hawaii, uh -huh. strongly encourage. Um, on Oahu, on the northern part of the island, is um, a cultural center. It's actually ran by BYU Hawaii. 
which I'll tell you traumatized, traumatizing story about that in a moment. Um, uh-huh. But what it is is um, it's a space where students from the major Polynesian communities are actually running villages there that you can go in and experience native ways of knowing. So the first time we went, my colleague and I, who I co-author with, Jennifer, we just noticed that these students, students running the center, right, are very unapologetic about the fact that colonization has really impacted some of their decisions. And it was this kind of transformative conversation. And it started our indigenous pedagogy talk here on campus. We went back this January, and then we took a group of people. We took Deanne Brooks as one. Deanne's a close uh, friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the very first thing we saw was this gentleman who's Hawaiian, and he was giving a talk on sailing. And so he said, where do the Hawaiian people come from? And nobody was really willing to answer. Mm-hmm. And he said, science would tell us we come from Asia. Right? We came down to Asia. We came down. We just happened upon New Zealand. We just happened upon Fiji. Like We just happened our way into Hawaii. Mm-hmm. He said, but that's not true. And he said, I'm a biochemistry major. He's a senior. He's like, that's not truth. When I talk to my family, my ancestors, my elders, mm-hmm. everything we know says we came from the East. And he laid it out methodologically how they came from Guatemala, from these indigenous communities across the South um, American coast. And he said, why would science tell us something different? And he said, because the colonizer doesn't want you to believe we're smart enough to traverse a large ocean before they could. And then he proceeded to show us the methodology that's been passed down from generation to generation of how you traverse an ocean. And he said, so really, all of these Polynesian cultures came out of Hawaii. They started there, and they went to all these different places because they were following different things, right? And he was unapologetic about it. He said, I'm not telling you don't believe science and don't believe scientists, because I am one, but I am telling you that way of knowing is not the way of knowing, right? That is not the story. So later in that day, um, I was meeting with Amori Carver, and he and I were talking a great deal about his carving and the work I'm trying to do around indigenous pedagogy here and what his experience has been, and he teaches at BYU Hawaii. And he said, you know, um, I know the story of my entire family, and my family, we were the ones to find New Zealand. And it's because we were sailing from here chasing an octopus who was eating our crop. And so we chased it and we landed here. We landed in New Zealand, the great cloud. Mm. Mm-hmm. Land of the long white cloud. Yep. Um, and he spent a great deal of time with both Deanne and I sharing kind of the story, walking us through mm. how Amori carving can tell you the whole story of the people. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And he said, this carving in particular is about my family finding the island, right? Finding the cloud. And he was able to walk you through what each one of those things meant. Um, And where Deanne and I just both kind of lost our breath in the moment is every student there could do that with their family. Our white students can't even do that. Our black students have had that robbed from them through slavery. Our indigenous students have had that robbed from them in multiple ways. The boarding schools were a significant way of doing that, right? 
So um, what we said is something has to be happening at BYU-Hawaii because these are all students at BYU. Because BYU, what they do is they bring the students to BYU-Hawaii and then they work in the cultural center for three days a week and then everything's paid for. Right, and so and with the year before, we had met with several students and talked to them about kind of their life goals. One of them was a kinesiology major. He told me how much he hated his running class, and I said, well, I'm a skateboarder. I hate running, too. <laughs> we bonded. Um, uh -huh. And he was going back to Tahiti to open a restaurant, right? And so he's talking about the classes he was taking and why he mm -hmm. chose kinesiology over business, right? I mean, average students. Something has to be happening, right? That these students are able to unapologetically blend their history and their story with what the Western world tells them is fact, right? And be able to distinguish the difference in ways. So we met with um, the director of their faculty development, their teaching and learning center, and we realized it's not happening at BYU-Hawaii. <laughs> it's happening at the cultural center. Because like the Maury Carver, he's a special instructor at BYU-Hawaii, right? So it's this space that's happening there it's allowing the students to see their full selves, share these stories, learn from these stories and from their people, right? And really start to see how they can be of TYC. Yeah, when we went to the BYU Hawaii, we met with the two people in their shop. One of them was a white guy with red hair, very white. The other one was a Samoan woman. And as soon as we walked in, the Samoan woman said, I will announce you. And when she went to go announce you, you look up and there's this giant painting that took up probably as much as that window of Joseph Smith conquering the indigenous people of Hawaii. Very much painted as Jesus and glowing. So we're like, oh no, <laughs> this can't be going well. <laughs> um, and when they came back in, they were very clear, the Samoan woman in particular said, well, I came here and never left because I knew I was going to learn so much from white people. White people were going to teach me everything. And that is why I came. That's a conquered spirit, right? So we know it's not happening at BYU Hawaii. It's happening in the space where there are elders who are able to pass these stories along and the students are able to apply these stories and practice them. So if you ever get a chance to go to Hawaii, I strongly suggest it. It's um, a great way to watch indigenous pedagogy and teaching and practice. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a great way to experience it as well because mm -hmm. it's extremely highly interactive mm -hmm. um, and talk with the students. It's an amazing experience to hear the students talk about their ability to overcome that level of colonization that they're not even aware of next door, right? Because we ask the simple question of, well, if you're telling us almost all your students are international, you know, it, does that mean that your few international faculty you have end up doing the bulk of the mentoring for those students, right? Which is what we see here, right? right. Faculty of color bear the burden of mentoring our students who look like them. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, 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 no. Let me give you an example of how that's not happening. And he said, we have this one Samoan faculty member. She teaches Polynesian politics. And all the Samoan students go to her for everything. <laughs> That's the opposite of it not happening. <laughs> so that is how much they're not aware. Wow. But there's still something happening where these students are overcoming that. And it's honestly through the storytelling, the reflection, and the application. That's what I have. Wow. Wow. Well, and that story can be retold in New Zealand. 
and it can be retold in Australia. In fact, in Tasmania, there are no Aborigines left because they were driven out or shot. Uh, and the Australian government apologised to the Aborigine community uh, 10 years ago. 2010 was the first time. And they, they particularly had these huge boarding schools. So they just followed the US model. And, and if you ever had a chance yeah. to Google boarding school survivors, yeah. we've started to record some of their stories. Now this is, you're talking about people who graduated in the 60s and 70s when they're mm -hmm. starting to end. So this is when they had the most oversight. And these are some of the most horrific stories you could imagine. Mm -hmm. It was a hundred times worse right, when they started. Mm -hmm. And the students talk about multi-generational trauma. And multi-generational trauma, if you ever get a chance to look at it, it physiologically changes how your body responds to stress. Mm -hmm. It triggers a fight or flight response and it gets passed down for generations. Our indigenous communities here in the US and in Canada have extremely high rates of obesity, diabetes, and coronary disease. And it is triggered from multi-generational trauma. It also then blends into how you parent, how violence is perceived as discipline, right? And then when you connect that with the earlier forced removal pieces, which in themselves created trauma, right? Where my physical activity is connected to place, my food understanding is connected to place, and those things have all been removed, and I've been put on a reservation space where I'm having government subsidized food. There's a reason why we have health issues, right? You've taken away the very things that we know make people healthy, and then you've created trauma that's physiologically changed how their body reacts, right? Um, and the boarding schools are really the root of the higher levels of domestic violence that happen in our indigenous communities, the higher levels of drug and alcohol use. Um, Alcohol, particularly fermented alcohol, was introduced by colonizers. It was never something that was part of our indigenous communities here. And certain drugs, marijuana in particular, were ceremonial. They had very clear rituals around them that created boundaries for their use. So when fermented alcohol got introduced, there were no rituals. There were no things to contain them, and they were rampant. And the British saw that and used that intentionally as part of their colonizing tactic. Mm. Um, much like they used cricket everywhere else in the world. <laughs> yeah. Cricket was used by the British to make sure everyone felt like British subjects, whether they'd be able to play it against each other or not. Um, it's a colonizing act. And so um, uh, things like individual games were brought here by the Europeans. The um, most indigenous communities did not have individual games. They were either played in groups or in teams. The idea of having a captain or a single leader was a Western concept brought to them. Were, everything was shared leadership. Specialization is brought to us by the British. Um, indigenous athletes were expected to play, be able to play every position because once you got good at one position, you needed to move to another one to learn a new skill. Right? The purpose was learning. It was never about becoming excellent at one thing. Um, 
this idea that everything they did was tied to survival was a British narrative. Right. So all of these things have impacted how our indigenous students see themselves. Well, and the people, uh, the Māori people in New Zealand, and I know the Aborigine people in Australia, they have this connection with the land. And when the land is taken from them, it's really, it's like taking their, their, their family. And then literally they did take their family by putting them in boarding schools. Mm -hmm. So uh, those songs from Midnight Oil are all about that. Mm -hmm. The Cherokee, um, Eastern Band Cherokee that are here, um, all live on what we call the Qualum Boundary. And they've been slowly buying it back. They've been slowly buying back their territory. So I always remind my students, wow. imagine what it's like <clears throat> to have to use your colonizer's economy <clears throat> to buy back something that was already yours and was <clears throat> stolen, right? A significant portion of their land is actually in the Pisgah National Forest. It's <clears throat> where a lot of the major sacred sites are. They have <clears throat> to sneak into the forest to visit their own sacred sites. Right. Many of the others are on private land and they have to illegally sneak into those spaces. Um, Western Carolina offers a culturally based native health mm. certificate. Phenomenal program as far as information. It's built with the Eastern Band Cherokee. Um, you do have to have a lot of time for it because the person who teaches it clearly was not meant to be an online teacher. It's very chaotic in that regard, but the information is phenomenal. Um, because it's the Eastern Band Cherokee are sharing this information, right, around their history, around major issues in native health in the United States. Um, and that's where all of these things come to light is how the Eastern Man Cherokee are trying to reclaim health. So the very lands that they know how to farm, how to care for, to feed their communities are not theirs. And they're quickly losing the knowledge on how to care and take care mm -hmm. of those lands. Right? The other piece is language. Language is a sacred component of many indigenous communities. And the Cherokee, in particular, um, have whole formula books of sacred formulas that they can share. But the minute they're translated into English, they lose their power. And almost all of them are being bought up and translated by researchers. So the Eastern Band Cherokee are really fearful of what's next for their community because all of the knowledge that they know is literally being stolen. So, so uh, can you talk about that a little more? So uh, when it is translated, it, so it's losing its power uh, because the Western researchers don't understand what uh, it represents? The minute it's help. translated, it loses the power of it being, it holds sacred power in Cherokee. Okay. That does healing. That they, so they always tell you those formula books, because every healer has their own formula book. And every healer actually is trained to heal something very specific. Mm -hmm. Right? They don't, they can't heal everything. They heal something very specific. So you go mm -hmm. to, you have a toothache, you go to that healer for a toothache, right? Mm -hmm. You have a heart condition, you go to this one. Mm -hmm. And they each have their own formula books and they're passed down from generation to generation. And they may be swapped between healers who work closely together. And they'll tell you those formulas are so powerful 
that they can also be used as a weapon. So it's important to keep them within the hands of people who are trained to use them. And so what early archaeologists started doing is they would go up to somebody who spoke Cherokee who needed money and say, I'll pay you X amount of money for you to translate this. They would just translate it and it loses all of its power, all of its sacredness in that translation. And then it's useless. And so it's almost like you have to start over. And so the Cherokee have really struggled with that. Um, when my students and I talked wow. about it this semester, the conversation really became down to how do we do ethical community research? The University of Hawaii Manoa um, has done a great job at that. Mm -hmm. um, they have a whole entire reciprocity um, training that all of their non-native indigenous faculty have to go through before they can do any research on the island, mm -hmm. whether they're working with people or not. Mm -hmm. um, we just we have not had those conversations we don't when you go through your irb training there's no conversation about yeah. stealing from cultures right or the whole inside right. or outside and if you read the cup of a moldy the every grant in new zealand would have to have a uh kamatua a advisor and an advisory board from so either pacifica if it was uh from aina or there's a samoan term for family so if it's from that group or if it's from uh, Māori, the kamatua is the elder from that piece of land or that area, and sometimes there are multiple kamatuas because it's, the uh, research might be in different schools in different locations. So you would have to actually have that permission. And so we all had, we did have to have uh, that kind of training that is similar to what you yeah. saw Hawaii do. Yeah. So, uh, questions from people here? Because I know, Laura, if you're going to go catch your cat, it's seven minutes. <laughs> All right. I just got to let her out a little bit yeah. after six. Or the dog, sorry. Yeah. My bad. This is not a question, but no, I know that kind you of don't have to have a question. Personal experience of Aboriginal in Australia. Yes. Because I've, I've been to Australia for two times, and in my first time, to Australia, I went to Sydney, Melbourne, uh -huh. which are big cities, uh -huh. and it was great. And for my second trip, I decided to go to Central Park of mm -hmm. Australia, where Ayers Rock is located. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And that trip made me feel very miserable because, mm. and I think that feeling comes from empathy mm. because. Um, I had three days trip to the Central Park, Alice mm -hmm. Springs, mm -hmm. and there were a lot of national park, and inside the national park, there was a lot of museums. Mm -hmm. And inside museums, there were a lot of um, interview, interview video from Aboriginal people telling how they lost their culture, their spirit, something like that. And in my understanding, as a foreigner outside Australia, all of these things is like saying um, the people who are in the power is saying, we, this is how we treat them in the past, but now we are trying to protect it. So I was really confused after I've been, I went there because after every time I came back from my trip, 
I tried to tell the story, tell my, my story about my trip to my students in elementary school. And I was really confused. And I was, I didn't know how to tell this story to my kids because even my story is not the truth. That is my understanding. So I was really confused about how much authentic, original voice of indigenous peoples are protected in this education and this culture and all of this, our world. So yeah, it was really inspiring for me, this all of talk. Well, our indigenous students here on campus will tell you, um, so this is the first semester I've ever taught this course. Um, several of them are getting ready to graduate. They've never had a course where they've seen themselves ever, not even one piece of literature, right? And when I taught our Kin 330 class for years, I always started with the story of Bright Path of Jim Thorpe because I wanted my native students in the room to be able to see themselves in the story and be able to talk about some of these things. Um, I also want people to know Pop Warner's an awful person, so I wanted them to know that before they left. <laughs> Gonna ruin some football for folks. Huh. Um, there's actually a story that I want to share with you. So. Um, Thomas King um, is a Cherokee, and he wrote, writes a lot of great things, but this book is probably one of my favorites. It's the truth about stories, and so he talks a lot about stories, and he's a storyteller naturally in a native way, but um, this, the one story that he tells in here that I think is so important, and um, I won't read it to you specifically, but he's, um, in his younger age days, he was invited to go to college campuses during Indigenous Peoples Week or Native American Week. And so he said it's always after Chicano Week and before African American Weeks. So if you're counting, that means there are 49 white people weeks um, in the United uh, States, which he thinks is so funny. Um, uh, but he got invited to this one talk, and um, it was him and a Mohawk artist and two gentlemen, two white gentlemen from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, right? And so the Mohawk gets up and talks all about the importance and spiritual connectedness of arts and why that's so important to Native communities. The, B, um, the BIA folks get up with all of their charts and PowerPoints to talk about the health of the indigenous communities here in the United States and how they're horrific and all these things. And then he gets up and he says, I'm gonna tell a story. That's what I do. And so he tells the story of Isha. And Isha um, was they think a Yahi Indian who came down from the lava fields outside of San Francisco. Um, and after everyone in his tribe had died, he kind of wandered into San Francisco and they're talking about like the late 1800s. And he was found behind a butcher shop. Now that this time it was legal and encouraged to kill an Indian on the spot, right? And he was not in good health. And so these two butchers come out and find him and they don't really know what to do because he's not doing well, so they don't want to just kill him. So they called the sheriff, and so the sheriff came and picked him up and didn't really know what to do with him, so they just put him in jail, right? And so the Bureau of Indian Affairs like, well, we don't really know what to do, so they just kept calling him the crazy guy of San Francisco, the crazy man of San Francisco. So these two anthropologists from the University of California of San Francisco wanted to start a kind of American history museum, and so they said, well, we can take him off your hands. So the Bureau of Indian Affairs said, yeah, you can have him. Like we're talking about the late 1800s. They're giving this man away, right? And so they allowed him to be a junior janitor at their museum. So he got like a certain amount of money for a week and he got room and board. 
And then on the weekends, he would come out and do cultural showings of how to make, you know, um, arrows, how to stretch leather, those kind of things. Um, and they said, his life is so good. You know, he can leave at any time, right? He, he's got this great life. He's, he's able to clean. He's able to live at the museum. He's able to go and come and go, but he could leave at any time. And Thomas King says, you know, the funny thing about that is where would he go, right? His people are gone. He wandered into San Francisco because he was lonely and hungry and hurting. There is no place for him to go. And he only lived five years and he died of tuberculosis working in this museum. But they were like, but we're doing these great things. And um, he never spoke. And so they finally named him Issa because Issa was the term for man in his language. And they only did it because they got tired of the reporters keep asking what's his name. So he said, I told the story and, and it's a true story and everyone's crying and you see people wailing and all these things. And he said, so, you know, then we, then we ended it and he said, this nice white woman who organized it, you know, is shaking the hands of the two white men from the Bureau of Indian Affairs and she hands them an envelope. And he's like, I know what's in that envelope. It's an honorarium. And I'm like, so excited. Cause like, I've already got ways I'm going to spend this honorarium. He's like, I'm Elmo and the Mohawk guy. And the Mohawk guy's like, yeah, I see too. <laughs> And the white woman comes up to them and just shakes her hand. And he's like, seriously, I think she just forgot my envelope. I'm not going to let go of her hand. And she said, why would you think you're getting paid? And he said, why would I not think I'm getting paid? You paid them. She's like, but they're experts. And he's like, so we're not experts in our own selves, of our own people. But these two white guys carrying these briefcases with these statistics are experts about me and my people. So he tells that story because that story, his story runs very parallel to issues, right? To this day, they're not allowed to own themselves, which is why I always start with the story of Bright Path of Jim Thorpe because I start with his death. Um, Jim Thorpe, greatest athlete of the 20th century, won the 1912 pentathlon um, in Stockholm came back, had his medals taken away from him because he had played semi-professional baseball during the summer, which every other white athlete had done. Um, he just said he didn't know to use a fake name. He said, I was a dumb Indian. I barely signed my name, right? Which is this internalizing that happens in the boarding schools. But when he died, his wife at the time was his third wife, Patsy, and she's white. She stole his body from his kids in the middle of his burial ceremony to sell it to this small town in Pennsylvania that's now called Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. And if you look it up, they never mention Jim Thorpe. They always look to mention how nice it is to go to the Poconos, um, which is a mountain train where it is. Um, and his kids have been fighting to get his bodies back. And his kids are in their 80s at this point because they have to finish the ceremony or he'll be tethered to the earth and destined to walk it. And the, this idea that he didn't even own his body in death, right? That is the level of hurt and dismissiveness and second-classness that we've assigned to these folks. Is this idea you don't own any part of your body, even in death. Sorry, not to end this on a bad note. No, not at all. Yeah, and I have another, so the, you read the Tanaka book, but this is another great one if you just yeah. want to think about decolonial narratives. Um, and that's a much more global approach. Thank you. Anyone is heavily on Christians and now you need to go rule soon. It's after six. So, uh,
questions. I, you know, you've uh, really uh, made us very thoughtful about uh, our understanding of uh, pedagogy, which is what this class is all about. My question is about the learning spirit. Is that mm -hmm. is that something I can find more on? Or okay, mm -hmm. um, Marie Batiste, so B A T T I S T E, I believe. If you just look up learning spirit and type that in, I'm sure it'll come up on Google. Okay, um, but yeah, that's she's written several. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Oh. Any other thoughts? Planning thoughts? I, mean, I can't make it. a cohesive question know, right yet. Has to go. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I've got several questions written down. We're going to have to have coffee sometime yeah. and chat about You them. can always find me via email. I'm here. Okay. No, I know, I know. I'm a 12-month employee, so I'm over here all the time. Okay. Yeah. I love that term, though, uh, wisdom keepers. Mm -hmm. yeah. Very yeah. cool. Very cool term. She, yeah. she was using yeah, and Tanaka, what I, if yeah, you ever Tanaka. get to, if you ever yeah. get to read the whole book, she's actually white, she's Scottish. Huh. Um, but she was able to sit yeah, in yeah. with this class and work with them and really kind of document it. Um, so she talks a lot about yeah, that. Yeah, I know that's uh, her name's on the bottom of that right? yeah. chapter. So. Yeah, I thought it was beautifully written. It was such a joy to read. Yes, it was um, a great book. Yeah, and lots of. Well, I'm really relatable for this group. Yeah, the student and teachers. just important yeah. pieces in the two that we read. And, and essentially, she's following these pre-service teachers through right. their entire course. And so she's she's really walking through what the elders and the wisdom keepers who are teaching the course in conjunction with the faculty member are sharing. Um, we're hoping to actually start a partnership with the University of Alberta's um, Aboriginal Teaching Educators Program. Oh, um, we've asked them to cool. write a chapter for an edited book as well. Nice. Um, but they specifically work with Indigenous and non-Indigenous pre-service teachers who want to teach in um, First Nation communities. Because what's happening in Canada is if you teach for two years in an Indigenous community, you get your certification for teaching for the rest of your life. You don't have to recertify. And so you have all these white teachers going to do that for two years and then leaving. Right. The problem is in indigenous communities, those relationships are so essential. Uh -huh. So it's actually devastating to those communities to have somebody come in and, and with the intention of leaving. So they're right. not building these no relationships with the parents right. and with the kids. Like right. um, so they, that's their answer to that is how do we train them before they even leave mm. to understand that if you're doing this, you're making a commitment mm -hmm. to these communities, right? This is not a come in and leave kind of situation. It is a commitment that you're going to stay in that community, mm -hmm. be part of that community, because that's essential to how the learning happens. Have you got someone from New Zealand in your book? No, because we're specifically looking at um, the indigenous practice of North America right. and the way we've done it. So um, we have a couple of folks actually from right at the U.S.-Mexican border who are going to write on some of their indigenous work as well. Right. <laughs> My former chair is now, she is Pacifica part Māori, part Samoan, and she is now the dean of this University of Northern uh, Beast, British Columbia, mm -hmm. which is right up there in the... It's called the Okanagan. Yeah, she she's she's uh, was the chair of the 
the indigenous uh, SIG for AERA. I don't know mm -hmm. if you've ever connected with any of those hopes. Mm -hmm. that, that might be something that you'd yeah. be interested in the future. Mm -hmm. They have a very uh, strong uh, group that would be interesting for you to yeah. engage with. The yeah. Pacific indigenous communities yeah. are leaps and bounds um, further ahead of yeah. ours as yeah. far as organizing, re-establishing and um, reclaiming certain things. Yeah. Our indigenous communities are, are incredibly devastated. Mm -hmm. um, right. The Pueblo are actually the only ones who own their own land and the rest of us are on land trusts. Huh. So the Iroquois don't, the Haudenosaunee, we don't own our land. It's a land trust because we weren't thought to be able to um, be responsible enough for their own land. But then at the same time, we're sovereign nations. So there's conflict in that. Um, the example I actually tell my students is about um, when the Iroquois Nationals went to go play at the World Federation International um, Lacrosse Championships that have happened every couple of years. And Great Britain has been allowed to host it twice, which I can't figure out how they were allowed to host it a second time. But they <laughs> would not accept the Iroquois passport. So here's the colonizer that starts it all, uh -huh. saying your passport doesn't count. You have to get a U.S. or Canadian passport. We won't let you in the country. And they had to forfeit everything. They weren't allowed to play in their game because the colonizer wouldn't accept their passport and acknowledge that they were sovereign nations. Even with Prime Minister of Canada and our Secretary of State writing letters in protest saying, well, these are sovereign nations. But not to the British. <laughs> yeah, so that was the part I think that killed everyone is here's the colonizer that started it. <laughs> yeah. They did it to the women a few years later. Of course. They so did. they're consistent. Yeah. Well, well, Laura, thank you so yeah, much. Thank you for having me. Hopefully it was useful on you guys very, when I leave. No, feel free to uh, talk about it if it wasn't. Very, <laughs> no, it's very uh, engaging and it just makes us critical about what we're doing. Um, yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll find the colonizers have their own difficulty in breaking free from a union at the moment. So, uh, you know, and they're, they're not particularly too pleased about how they've been, uh, how they've been treated by a uh, collection. So it's interesting uh -huh. just to see in the contemporaries this time how, yeah. Yeah, it comes full circle. Yeah. As I say, it does kind of make you want to go, oh, look at that. Wasn't that what I said when Meghan Markle married Prince Harry and then they, now they've reached out to the throne, they're like, we were playing the long game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting. You know, and my students and I talk about it. You know, my family is Pennsylvania Dutch, Irish, English, Tuscora, right? Mm. So... There's, there's a lot of colonizer in there <laughs> as well. And how many of our students have to contend with those two sides, right? Their indigenous side and their colonizing side. And then, so we um, start all of our courses by setting up um, ground rules. And one of the ground rules we agreed upon this time in teaching this course was that um, we are not responsible for the past, but we are responsible for where we go in the future, right? So. It's hard to be a white male in my class, and I know it, and it's okay because it's easy for white males everywhere else, so it should be hard in my class. Um, but they're not responsible for history that they have benefited from, but they are responsible for who they are when they leave this space. Um, and that, has, that, that really sets the tone for when we have some of these really difficult conversations. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. That's a good one.
Thank you guys for having me. No, oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for coming. Can you, can you can you send me these? Mm -hmm. so I can, I'll just put them up on canvas. Yep, I can send them. That'd be great. Yeah. And I'm sure. Well, we've got a recording, so uh, I'm sure Judy will want to hear it too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. Laura, thank, thank you. you. Much appreciated. Uh, so, Maori Kiora, which is thank you. Thank you all. Yeah. yeah. Go, get, go let yeah. the dog out. <laughs> you gotta go let her out. Yes. <laughs>